credibility problems can arise if the witness has made earlier statements that are inconsistent with their trial testimony. In other words, Bill Brown as a witness might not be believable because he changed his story. Bill Brown made earlier statements that are inconsistent with their trial testimony. So how come Brown is considered as a credible witness? A witness's credibility can be attacked by either side at trial, including the side that called the witness. A jailhouse informant's credibility is often not to be trusted because they're getting reduced jail time in exchange for their testimony. As such, the informant has a strong reason or motivation to testify. On top of that, the informant might be testifying while handcuffed and in a prison jumpsuit. A witness's appearance, attitude and demeanor can affect believability. Juries at John Ortiz Kehoe's court trial did not review the informant's testimony with particular care. Most people in jail are represented by attorneys. When law enforcement attempts to get a pre-trial confession, or find out information about a crime using a jailhouse snitch, the constitutional rights of the inmate may be violated, if law enforcement attempts to discover the incriminating evidence, without the presence of the inmate's attorney. While there is no violation, if an inmate volunteers incriminating evidence to another inmate, and the receiving inmate, takes that information to law enforcement, purposefully recruiting an inmate to elicit, the incriminating evidence is illegal, as it implies a violation of the inmate's Sixth Amendment right to Character counsel. Character evidence offered under the mercy rule is usually in the form of opinions from the defendant's close acquaintances. Like all other evidence, in order to be admissible, character evidence has to be relevant and based on personal knowledge. This means that the trait of the defendant's character to which a witness testifies must have some connection to the charged crime. The mercy rule allows a criminal defendant to offer evidence of his good character as a defense to criminal charges. Obviously, John Ortiz Kehoe did not get any. The prosecutor, the star witness, jurors, butchered him to death. We the jury find the defendant, John Ortiz Kehoe, guilty of first degree Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from John Kehoe. An inmate at the Michigan Department of Corrections, Muskegon Correctional Facility. From a 7 by 10 foot cell of a Michigan prison, I am John Ortiz Kehoe. And welcome to Creating a Cannibal. Creating a Cannibal is a podcast dedicated to exposing the truth behind the wrongful conviction that left me labeled as a monster and sent me to die in prison. Now, for the first time, you are about to hear the true story of what happened inside and outside of the courtroom. I'll reveal the names of witnesses who took the stand and tell you what they said. You'll find out who was actually involved and learn about the role they played in framing me for a crime I didn't commit. For 20 years, I was silenced by the concrete walls and razor wire that surrounds me. And for 20 years, the media ran with the one-sided version of this case, a version that is full of distorted evidence and outright lies. They gave you sensational headlines, but me, I'm giving you the truth. Judas, Rat, 
snitch. We're all familiar with the words we commonly use to label a scumbag who points his accusing finger at a person in exchange for some sort of gift from the government. Each derogatory term is meant to emphasize and characterize the deplorable conduct of a spineless lowlife. Yet, you're supposed to trust these parasites when a prosecutor tells you to. But tell me, would you trust them if your freedom hung in the balance? Would you believe a word they say if it was your life that was on the line? Of course you wouldn't. And if their life was on the line, neither would the crooked prosecutors who so frequently reward a snitch with a get-out-of-jail-free card. This is Creating a Cannibal, Episode 8, Jailhouse Snitch. In addition to stacking the witness stand with Bill Brown's family and friends, Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey also used the testimony of several jailhouse informants. The first jailhouse informant to testify for the prosecution was Michigan prison inmate Chad Scott. Inmate Chad Scott, who was serving a prison sentence for delivery of cocaine, claimed to have overheard John bragging about killing Ms. Larner at a party in front of 200 people. Even though the alleged party was said to have been held in Albion, Michigan, a town with a population of less than 9,000 people, when Chad Scott was asked to name one person, other than John, who attended the party, Mr. Scott said he could not remember the name of anyone else who was there. Chad Scott initially came forward in the summer of 1996, when the authorities were still searching for John. In his first attempt at securing an early release in exchange for providing the police with information, Chad Scott told the former Calhoun County prosecutor that he knew where John was hiding. He did not, however, have information pertaining to Ms. Larner's death. Chad Scott admitted that the former Calhoun County prosecutor thought he was lying and sent him back to prison. Although, after the specifics of Bill Brown's accusations against John, were published in several newspapers, and Chad Scott was visited by Michigan State Police Detective Douglas Barrett. Chad Scott's details of the case became a word-for-word -word copy of Bill Brown's story, and he was then considered to be a trustworthy witness. During John's trial, Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey assured the jury that inmate Chad Scott was not receiving any special favors for his testimony against John. Yet, soon after testifying for the prosecution, Chad Scott was paroled from prison. On the fourth day of John's trial, a small group of jurors approached Judge Miller, and said they ran into three members of John's family, at a local Applebee's restaurant. The jurors complained, that John's family members were drinking alcohol, and seemed to be mocking them. It was learned, only after John's trial was over, that the three family members the jurors spoke of, were John's brother, the mother of John's son and a man by the name of Fred Tripp. Given the fact that Fred Tripp was slated to testify against John, and was also a witness in a criminal case against John's brother, why the three would be having lunch together, and were purposely trying to sabotage John's trial, is a mystery that has never been solved. Nonetheless, Fred Tripp, who was waiting to be sentenced for a federal drug crime, ultimately took the stand, and testified for the prosecution. According to Mr. Tripp, John told him, there would be no more Rose Bowls, and he didn't know it took so long to strangle someone. 
Fred Tripp also claimed that John's brother said he cleaned blood out of the bathtub in the Albion house. Fred Tripp agreed to testify against John, in exchange for a reduced sentence on his federal drug conviction. Fred Tripp was convicted for the same federal drug offense as Russell Brown Jr., and just like Russell Brown Jr., Fred Tripp was never charged for his participation in the cover-up of Ms. Larner's death. Furthermore, it was revealed when Detective Don Brooks testified, that Fred Tripp was the detective's confidential informant, and Mr. Tripp provided Detective Don Brooks with the location of Ms. Larner's death before Bill Brown agreed to cooperate. Of course, Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey didn't exclusively exploit the duplicity of jailhouse informants confined within Michigan prisons. Florida prison inmate Sam Ayers, was also summoned to Michigan by the prosecutor. Inmate Sam Ayers claimed that John and Bill Brown confessed to killing a woman in Michigan. Sam Ayers offered this information, only after being visited by Detective Don Brooks, while he was incarcerated in a Florida prison. Sam Ayers also claimed, that his cousin Regino Alexander was present, when John and Bill Brown made the confession. Yet, when Regino Alexander was interviewed by Detective Jack Pete, Regino Alexander insisted, that Sam Ayers was lying. And Bill Brown himself testified, that neither he nor John mentioned anything about Ms. Larner to Sam Ayers. Nevertheless, Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey booked a flight for Florida inmate Sam Ayers, and he was flown to Michigan, so he could testify against John for the prosecution. Regino Alexander, on the other hand, was never called as a witness. In a message delivered to the court from inmate Troy Leferrier, Mr. Leferrier stated, that he was visited in prison by detectives from the Michigan State Police. The detectives promised Troy Leferrier, he would receive a reduction on his sentence, and get special considerations in prison, if, he cooperated and testified in a certain manner. The detectives also told Mr. Leferrier, that if he didn't cooperate, they would talk to the parole board against his parole, and make sure he would have problems in prison. When Troy Leferrier was called to testify, he told the judge, that he was afraid of being implicated in federal crimes unrelated to Ms. Larner's death, but associated with John Ortiz Kehoe and the people testifying against him. Therefore, Mr. Leferrier asserted his Fifth Amendment right and he did not testify. The manipulation of prison inmates, was a hallmark of the investigating detectives involved in the case against John. In a recorded interview, Michigan State Police Detective Don Brooks, was caught offering one of the inmates incentives, for what he wanted to hear. The detective then told the informant, that he makes these deals all of the time and any deal he made, would be kept confidential. The recorded interview further revealed, that Detective Don Brooks was providing the informant, with details of the case before the informant offered any of his own information. Detective Brooks was allowing the inmate, to simply repeat what he was being told. When the informant stated something contrary to what the detective wanted to hear, Detective Don Brooks corrected the informant, and then told the informant, about specific facts the detective was looking for. In a separate incident, an inmate said, that Michigan State Police Detectives Don Brooks and Douglas Barrett, interviewed him at length, before the detectives began recording his statement. Similarly, when Bill Brown gave his first confession, and revealed his account of Ms. Larner's murder, Detective Don Brooks spoke with Brown for hours, before the detective started recording the interview. 
the jury never heard much of this information, because by law, it was argued outside of their presence, and contained in police reports the jury was not allowed to see. However, Assistant Prosecutor Kelsey knew about the dubious backgrounds of each of his jailhouse informants, yet, he still vouched for each inmate's credibility. And when a jailhouse informant is provided with the details of a case, and the prosecutor withholds the truth about giving that prisoner incentives for his cooperation, it becomes a simple task, for the prosecution to dupe the jury, into believing the testimony of a jailhouse snitch. It's kind of funny how each of these rats only provided information about the case when they were interviewed by Michigan State Police Detectives Don Brooks and Douglas Barrett. For a year and a half, two separate detectives interviewed many of these same people, and they had nothing to say about me. But when Brooks and Barrett stepped in, that all changed. If you read the transcribed police reports of the recorded interviews conducted by Detective Don Brooks, it's plain to see that he's the person providing all of the details. Or should I say, he provided the script for each willing inmate to follow. He was a dirty cop who didn't care about breaking the law because he knew he'd retire before he'd ever have to answer for the mess he made if he would be held accountable at all. Dirty cops rarely are. But he only provided those rats with the information. It was the prosecutor who put them on the stand and knowingly let them lie to the jury. And as you will soon hear for yourself, lying to the jury was not merely condoned by Assistant Prosecutor Chelsea. It was also the prosecutor's personal trial strategy. Next time, in Episode 9, Experts and the Evidence. One by one, a team of forensic investigators from the Michigan State Police Crime Lab were called to the witness stand. Sergeant Michaud said he was only able to locate one fingerprint belonging to Bill Brown. The fingerprint was lifted from a bottle of blackberry brandy. What scientist Amy Michaud did not tell the jury was that luminol can also give false positive reactions to common household cleaning product containing bleach. And when further analysis was conducted on the carpeting, the test did not confirm the presence of blood. Gregory Michaud examined the alleged murder weapon and they were unable to detect the presence of fingerprint blood or human tissue on the cord. At the end of their search, the team was only able to uncover eight tiny bone chips. When each of the experts were asked if their findings could prove how Ms. Larner died or who was responsible for her death, each expert witness answered, no. Thank you for listening to Creating a Cannibal, an MRI production. Make sure you follow me on social media and check out my blogs for a more in-depth look at how I was framed. Creating a Cannibal is a podcast produced under Amaron Productions. Gerardo G. Gonzalez Jr., Robert D. Tapp and Lucas Sampson are editorial advisors, Emerald Santos our executive producer and the one who mixed our show. Our theme music are Excellent Adventure and France vs. Korea composed by Ari De Niro. Our website is creatingacannibal.wordpress.com. Special thanks to Mr. John Ortiz Kivo for sharing his side of story. Also visit John's blog website where you can see documents from the case, johnortiz-kivo.blogspot.com.